All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so glad you could join us for worship today. As always, very thankful to be able to worship and to share God's word. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff, and we do want to welcome you. Yeah, quick shout out. I don't know what the inspiration was or if it was something from last week, whatever it was, but there was a lot more people on time today than I'm used to. Yeah, you could tell because the praise team, like they had some oomph to kick it off today. And I would say whatever it was that motivated that, let's keep doing that. And just to let you know, pastorally, it's less of this legalistic rule following thing. It's, I don't want anyone to miss out on worshiping God through the phrasing and singing. It's such an integral part of what the weekly rhythm is for a Christian. And I just know like, Obviously, life happens, and, you know, we're not here to judge anyone, but if you consistently are not able to take part in the singing and the congregational singing to one another and lifting up God, you're, you're missing out on something that is so precious to the Christian life. And so, again, shout out to anyone uh, who maybe that hasn't been on your radar in a long time to maybe come on time or come early, and that hopefully that's something that we can continue to build at our church. And again, we're continuing the season of Advent. Again, we're not doing a, a lot of things, but we do want to be mindful that the season is obviously the holiday season and Christmas decorations are up everywhere, songs are singing. But as a church, we always want to be reminded that along with the historic Christian church, Advent, it's about the coming of Christ and the birth of Jesus. And so that's something that we always want to be mindful of. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, we are on a uh, sermon series, five-week series. Today's week three on the book of Malachi. Just a very quick recap, as always, that I'm giving every week. It's especially appropriate for Advent because it is the last word that God gives to his people before uh, the birth of Jesus in the first Christmas in the New Testament. Now, to briefly recap, uh, Malachi is unique. It's, it's literally a look into God's heart because he's talking in a very real way to his people. He's engaging them. He's conversing with them regarding a whole variety of topics, right? In the first conversation we saw, he begins his conversation not only back then, but I think to anyone who is following him and calls himself um, a child of God, that he loves you. I hope every Sunday you come into here, before you hear anything else from the word or reminded of anything else, that you're reminded of God loves you. It doesn't matter what kind of week you lived or you know, how guilty or shameful you might feel or you might have even committed some sins. Just know the, the beauty of Christianity is you are loved by God. And so that is the affirmation that God begins the conversation with. But last week we saw, but at the same time, God still cares how you treat his name. Right? And so half-hearted worship was, was rampant. And so God addresses that. He says, hey, you wouldn't treat any other respectable figure this way. Why are you doing that to me, the Lord of hosts? And so we learn, hey, it's important to give God our best. And so not only does God care about vertical worship, today we're going to see also he cares a lot about how you treat your horizontal relationships as well. He will say those two things are tied together. So in light of that, if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's turn to our text for today in Malachi chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 10 through 16. And as we turn there, can we all rise together as here at our church? We believe that every time we open God's word, he is present and speaking and moving through his word. So Malachi chapter 2, starting from verse 10. This is the reading of God's word. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. Verse 13. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. 
Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, at this time, we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to be attentive to the word you have for us today. May it be something that really lands well to good soil in our hearts and that would affect and influence not just us individually, but us together as a church. So we thank you and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so I've mentioned this before, uh, but it's still relevant in my life. I've recently started seeing a physical therapist again, uh, because as much as I want to deny it, father time is unbeaten, unless you're LeBron James, but I'm not, right? And I'm not getting any younger. And so I just thought, like, you know, a lot of my peers, some same age, some younger than me, are getting, like, these crazy injuries, right? Like a friend of mine, um, you know, hurt his back. Another friend of mine, you know, Towards Achilles, and all kinds of things are happening. So it kind of raised the alarm. I think any any um, father, thirty and above, that raised like a red alert. Like, hey, <laughs> we need to take care of our body. So I met one of the PTs, a uh, brother at this church actually, and I love going more so than getting the treatment, just learning about the body, right? How intricate the muscles are and the nerves are. But the main takeaway is not so much how different all these body parts are, but actually how connected they are, right? One thing I learn every time I go is whatever pain you're experiencing. Typically, wherever the pain is, the root cause of that is from somewhere else. And it almost seems so random. So I remember uh, I played football with uh, some of the brothers at the church, and heading into a tournament, I had groin pain for no explanation other than, I guess, I'm just because I'm past 30. So I was like, hey, I have groin pain. What can I do? Uh, why is this happening? He's like, you know your groin pain. It's not because of your groin. It's because of your abs. It's like, huh? <laughs> like, how is that correlated? He's like, yeah, the reason it's happening is because this muscle is not functioning correctly. Another time I was like, hey, I have this like, chronic ankle pain. How do I fix my ankle? He's like, yeah, it has nothing to do with your ankle. It's because your glute is not firing. Like your butt's not working. I was like, huh? <laughs> like, how, do, how does that make any sense? So it's been an eye-opening experience to say the least. And obviously, the more I'm a pastor, the more I make these connections, the more I realize the same creator of the physical body has created the spiritual body. And there's all these correlations that happen. And I share that because in our text today, on the surface, the people of Israel are spiritually frustrated and confused because something seems off for them corporately as a, as a body, right? More specifically, to use that example, the pain point for them we see is in verse 13. And the pain point is this, that God is not receiving their offerings, right? That's the frustration they're raising. Like, God, why are you not accepting our offerings? Now, we're not told specifically how they knew that God wasn't accepting their offering, Right? I'm pretty sure it wasn't as simple as they offered it up and God threw it back. I'm sure it wasn't something like that. Maybe it was because their prayers were like obviously not getting answered. Maybe it was things were explicitly going wrong in their life. But I would argue if you are a Christian and you are someone who follows God, you may actually be able to relate to the idea that you can come in here and you can sing praises to God and something feels off. Like there's a distance or almost like there's a, a wall between you and God. I would say that's a similar thing to what was probably going on here. Because the text clearly says they objectively knew something was off. And they're not quite sure why. And while you might naturally think the reason was religious in nature, right? Because why is God not accepting our religious offerings? Maybe it's because we're not being devoted enough. Maybe it's because we're not praying enough. Reading our Bibles enough. The answer might come as a surprise to you. And it says a lot about what matters to God. Look at verse 14, and it says, you ask why. In other words, why are you not accepting our offerings? Are we not being devoted enough? Are we not being religious enough? And he says, here's why. 
Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. What? God says, the reason I'm distant from you and I'm not accepting your offerings, it's not a religious reason. It's a relational one. And it has to do with something very specific. How are you treating your marriage? How are you treating your spouse? Isn't that fascinating? That's very interesting. What is the connection there? You see, for a lot of us who grew up in the church, when someone asks you the very prototypical small group question, uh, how are you doing spiritually? What do you naturally think of? Doesn't your brain start thinking, oh, this question revolves around how's my devotional life? Am I doing my quiet times with the Lord? Am I attending church faithfully? Am I serving? Am I praying? But Malachi would say, actually, you know what you, how you really know how you're doing spiritually with God? He would say, you should not think about your religious duties. You should think about your relationships. How are your close relationships? And more specifically for those who it is applicable, how's your marriage? How is your covenant marriage relationship going? Now, right off the bat, obviously, this is a very specific text. There's a number of ways you can approach it. If most of our church was maybe college students or not yet married, I may have approached it differently. But I don't know if you knew, we take regular demographics of our church. Over half of our church is married now, which is crazy because that was not always the case. Some of us who've been here for a while, right, our church used to be a lot younger. But now I'd say the average age is pretty much over 30. The majority of people who are coming are more so married or young parents. And so the trajectory of our church points to the reality that most are married or many hope to get married in the near future. Now, in no way does this mean if you aren't married that this message doesn't apply to you. In fact, I think you're better off because now you have a better vantage point of what the Bible has to say about it, presuming that, Lord willing, most of us want to get married. But I do want to deal with this topic explicitly because not every day do you come across a text that deals with marriage so specifically, and I think it's so relevant for our church. So that being said, let's journey through this conversation Malachi has with God, starting in verse 11. So he says, Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and Jerusalem. So the prophet Malachi raises the alarm and says something terrible has happened in in Israel, and Judah has done something treacherous. Now, when's the last time you went to your friend and said, I'm mad at you because you were treacherous towards me? Nobody uses that word, okay? But this word shows up five times in this text. It's the, use, it's the choice word of Malachi to describe the behavior of the Israelites and what is so bothersome to God. So let's break down this word treacherous because it's not a common word we use. The simple definition of someone who is treacherous is someone who is deceitful and not trustworthy even though they seem to be or should be. Uh, let me give you a very recent analogy happened in the past 24 hours. I hope there's no Angels fans here. Okay, I don't think there are. If there are, uh, it's okay. There's always grace of God. But there was a huge announcement yesterday, which was basically $700 million was signed to probably one of the best baseball players ever, Shohei Otani, right? Signs with the hometown LA Dodgers. And one of these videos that announced him, it's very like in your face to the Angels fans. It could have just shown him like wearing a Dodgers jersey and like, yeah, we have him now. But I kid you not, it starts with him wearing an Angels jersey. And then he turns around and it turns into a Dodgers jersey. Like how much more like rub it in your face can you get, right? And I bring that up because what an Angels fan would say is like, that is a treacherous move, Otani. That is a treacherous move. You wore the garment of a hometown lifelong Angel player and you turn on us like that. You deceive us, you betray us. Now I use that illustration in particular because the Hebrew word for acting treacherously literally translates to that idea. The image of changing your garment, right? Literally, that's what happens. 
carries the idea that you wear one uniform to display and symbolize loyalty to something or someone, and then you change it in other settings. That's deceptive. That's what Malachi is saying throughout this text. The treachery of his people is that God's people are looking the part and dressing the part of a good Christian on the outside. But he keeps saying the treacherous nature of what you're doing is you are living totally contrary to the way that you are dressed. And he calls it out. And the first treacherous sin he points out for Israel was very explicit. It's intermarrying with foreigners. Look at what he says. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign Now, I always want to clarify, the sin issue here has nothing to do with interracial marriage. In fact, I think when you have mixed babies, they're some of the cutest babies ever, right? So I'm very pro, you know, when ethnicities and cultures mix. That has nothing to do with what's going on here. In fact, God says nothing about not marrying a different culture, a different race. But the issue here, notice, it doesn't say that he married a foreigner. It says he married the daughter of a foreign god. You have to understand a little bit about the context of ancient Israel. The reason this was a big deal and the reason God explicitly commanded them not to marry or intermarry with the pagan nations, and there's text after text that points to this, was mainly to prevent the importation of idolatry and false worship into the life of Israel. In fact, I can get into detail, but the Canaanites that surrounded them, some of their false ideologies and worship involved things like baby sacrifice, uh, polygamy, all kinds of things that clearly are not pleasing to God. And in the Old Testament, the pattern always was when the men would take these foreign wives who worship these foreign gods and would marry them, it would always more often than not lead to compromise, lead to them turning away from God. One of the most famous examples of this was King Solomon, who one of his main vices was he married all these foreign wives and that led to the syncretistic importation of all kinds of idolatry and false worship. So long story short, the reason that this was so important was God called his people to be holy, aka set apart in their worship. And to intermarry with different religions and different gods would be to confuse the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, to taint their witness. Now they don't even know who, who's, who really is the God of this people. And third, cause them to turn away from God. Now, is this just an Old Testament thing? No, it shows up hundreds of years later uh, in the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 6.14. He says it very explicitly. He says, hey, do not be yoked or unequally yoked with those who do not believe. Now, I know I'm saying this initially as a more black and white thing, and I know it's a very relevant topic for us today. And just know, I'm very aware, even though it's clear on paper, it is extremely complicated and complex in reality and not so easy. I understand. I totally get it. For example, here's some very real situations that we deal with on a real basis as pastors. What do you do if you you married your spouse and they were Christian, professing Christian, and they no longer profess Christ, whether it's because they just denounced their faith altogether or they've deconstructed their faith and they don't follow Jesus anymore. What do you do in that situation? For that one in particular, I would say there is actually provision. You don't leave the marriage. You follow Christ faithfully and trust his sovereignty. Okay, so there's that. Or another one, is it okay to date someone who's not a believer so long as you make a condition that you don't marry them? That's a very real question as well. Or Pastor Sam, I get all these good principles, but you don't understand It's a desert out there. I hear this one the most often, right? Like, it is a wasteland. And I always say, what about Grace Hill? And they say, that's the wasteland, (laughs) right? (laughs) And each each gender says that, right? So I'm just like, oh, man, that's tough. And I get it, right? Like, easy for you to say, Pastor Sam. Like, you're married now. There's literally nobody out there. And I, I empathize with that. That must be tough. Or maybe this doesn't apply to you, but you know someone in this situation. 
Right, Christians, you're not called to just be, as long as you're good, it's all good. No, we're a body, we're interconnected. What if someone in your community group is going through something like this? How would you counsel them? How would God call you to counsel them? A lot of questions, right? More than I have time for. And in reality, I have a lot of empathy, especially maybe for those who are not yet married, yet long to be married, right? I know that is a very, you know, it's not easy to be in a season like that. But I do want to clearly remind you of the biblical principle and reality that if you love Jesus and you value him, it will be very difficult to wed and unite yourself with someone who does not share that love. Kathy Keller, Tim Keller, who passed away his wife, uh, she wrote a very honest article that was very helpful for this. She talks about how her and Tim Keller, the number one issue pastorally they faced in counseling was this situation. People who wanted to marry or wanted to be in a relationship with those who didn't believe. And she talked about how, like, man, I just try to avoid the situation or, you know, I didn't want to make it overly black and white or come across legalistic. But she's like, I saw it so much that I could not help but at least try to graciously write the reality that there's only three outcomes that can happen when this is the case. The first outcome she puts, and it's up there, she says, one situational outcome could be, if you choose to do this, in order to be more in sync with your spouse, the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. Uh, in order to be more in sync with your spouse, the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life. Is it up there? It should be soon. In other words, say you're a Christian, right? And you believe that the Bible calls you to tithe and give of your money and your service to the church. But your spouse doesn't care about those things. What are you going to do in a situation like that? Or you want to be hospitable to church members or you want to be in a small group that meets every single week and you want to host them at your house. But your spouse is like, what is a small group? Why would I want to give of my time and my energy to do stuff like that? Or in the way you raise your family. You want to send your kids to church. You want to do family worship. But your spouse does not even believe in the Bible. So why would you do that? Again, this is not to discount that you might genuinely love each other and want to share life together, but these are very real things you're going to come across. A second outcome. Alternatively, if the believer in the marriage holds on to a robust Christian life and practice, the non-believing partner will have to be marginalized. So it's either one, in order to centralize your spouse, you have to push Christ to the margins, or if you want to centralize Christ, you have to push your spouse to the margins. I actually think this one's maybe more realistic from what I hear, where it's not like the person that you want to be with is explicitly saying, you can't be Christian or you can't go to church. Actually, most people are very like, you know, I respect that. You know, in fact, I respect Christianity. I want you to do what you're going to do. It's just not for me, right? You do your thing. And that seems like a better situation on paper, but if God is calling you to something or convicting you of something, how would you share that with someone who does not believe that God places those kind of things on your heart? How would you share a deep prayer request for someone who doesn't believe in prayer? So there's a level of intimacy and connectedness that you will never be able to have when it comes to that. And so by result, the third outcome, either the marriage experiences stress and breaks up or it experiences stress and stays together. Now, again, I say this and she says this in the article with a lot of grace and understanding that there's so many nuances. It's not black and white, but there are some universal truths that I think these things point to. And I think the text is talking about today. Now, just know, I share, I share this not because I don't want, especially if you're not married yet, to prevent you with being with someone that you love, right? And in fact, most people I talk to that are single, they say, I genuinely want to marry a Christian. I've yet to meet a Christian who's like, I want to marry a non-believer. I've yet to meet someone like that. So if I can share my own personal thought regarding this pastorally, uh, oftentimes when I do the digging, I think a large part of the reason people have a hard time is not so much that there are no Christians out there. 
okay? Like, let's be honest. Like, no Christians exist within your radius. Obviously, that's not true. Typically, it's because there are certain barriers which make you rule these people out, right? And one of the main things that I think in Orange County, from what I hear, that is the hardest to overcome, and it is this unquestioned value, is this word attraction that nobody questions. Are they Christian? Yes. Do they have everything on paper that checks the boxes? Yes. Do everybody think that you guys would be great together and you could potentially really have a godly marriage? Yes. But I'm not attracted to them. Oh, then everything's, everything's no. Bye-bye. Now, I am not saying attraction is not important. Okay? I think attraction is very important. But I don't think it is ultimate. Neither do I think the Bible says that. And if I could really encourage our singles to not say, hey, nullify the importance of attraction. Rather, have a more holistic perspective, which is this. That the Bible pushes the idea that attraction does not necessarily have to be the, the prerequisite or the basis for marriage. But it very really can be the product of marriage. It can be. Now, I know the cultural waves of Hollywood and just the sensational social media culture we live in really highlights that. But you have to think about the longevity and the long game of marriage. You are dealing with something with maybe five, max ten years will predicate the rest of your life potentially with this person. And the Bible paints a very, very different picture here. And so for those of you, you know, I would just pastorally encourage you to take that for what you will. But for those of you who may actually be dating a non-believer or maybe considering dating a non-believer, I really hope you don't feel singled or called out. That's really not the intention. Instead, I would encourage you, because it is such an important decision, don't feel like you need to compartmentalize or feel ashamed by that. But that's what the church is here for. That's what older, wiser couples are here for. That's what older brothers and sisters are here for. That's what pastors are here for, to talk about it, to wrestle through it to pray about it, and you can even do that with fellow brothers and sisters. Because at the very least, I think what Malachi is saying and what the Bible is saying is if Christ is your greatest treasure in love, the person you choose to commit the rest of your life to should be someone who understands and shares that love. That is the principle. But marrying non-believers actually wasn't even the worst of Israel's sins, to shift gears. I mean, the text tells us they were doing that, and that would be bad enough. But the way they were doing that was in order to marry these foreign women, they were divorcing their own wives. It's actually really messed up if you think about it. Look at verse 14. You ask why. Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherous against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. If you really dig into the context implication, it is messed up. The implication is that these older Jewish men were divorcing their older Jewish wives who they no longer were attracted to or interested in in order to marry these younger, presumably more attractive foreign wives. Doesn't that make your blood boil? Imagine how much that upsets God because that is a gross misrepresentation of what marriage is supposed to be. Oh, when I'm sick of you and done with you, out goes you, in comes who are going to be pleased. That is the epitome of the opposite of what covenantal love is. It is a self-serving, self-absorbed, you know, self-pleasure principle. It's everything that is wrong with, I think, a lot of our culture today. Now, I do want to give a quick caveat that the Bible, it doesn't treat divorce lightly. Okay, It, doesn't, it also doesn't simplify it. I actually think biblically there's lots of room to discuss because actually grounds where divorce is permitted, right? Some of them being namely uh, adultery 
or abandonment. That doesn't mean God enjoys it when it happens, but there's provision for there. So it's not this one-dimensional thing when it comes to divorce. I also know it might be a personal topic for those of us maybe who it's a closer-to-home topic. But those exceptions, which are very real exceptions, are not what Malachi is addressing here. Malachi is addressing and emphasizing the more concrete nature of God's intention for marriage, which is first, notice, Malachi emphasizes that marriage is a covenant by definition. It is a covenant. I'm sure most of us have been to at least one wedding or witnessed a wedding before. And if somebody asks you, like, what are the bare minimum elements required for a wedding to be legit? You ever thought about that before? Right? I'll tell you this. It's not the flowers. It's not the reception. It's not the groomsmen. It's not everybody dressing up. It's not the food. It's not even primarily the guests. It's not even the efficient. You know, the Bible never says to get married, you have to have a pastor. (laughs) That's just culture. You don't have to have a pastor to marry. But the two things that need to be present at any covenantal wedding and marriage for it to be legit, it's the wedding vows and witnesses. Vows and witnesses. Why? Because that's the essence of what a covenant is. A covenant by nature is a formal agreement between two parties that is legitimized and entered into in the presence of witnesses. In other words, if there are no vows at a wedding, it's not a marriage covenant. If there are not witnesses, it is not a marriage covenant. That's why when you sign a marriage license, you know who also needs to sign it? Typically your best man and your maid of honor. Why? Because they are the witnesses. So even today we understand there is some sort of covenantal thing that is happening in this wedding ceremony. Now, especially in the ancient world, the witness variable was especially important. Because in the ancient world, they didn't have written contracts. They didn't have that kind of system. So let's say you and I wanted to do some sort of agreement. Like, hey, I want to sell you my house. Or we want to enter into some sort of in, you know, intentional relationship. We wouldn't sign paper. We would say, let's go find a respectable elder in the community. Let's go before him, and then let's verbally make our agreement, and he'll listen and witness to this. And from that moment on, he is an official witness where holds us accountable to that covenant. So if I ever break it, where can you go to? You don't pull your contract, you go to him. And you say, hey, remember, you were there. Remember what was said? And you would say, yes, I was witness to that. And it was legally ratifying. So what are the terms of marriage and the marriage covenant? If you are a married couple sitting here today, Do you realize what kind of vow and covenant that you made with your spouse on your wedding day? I was forced to reread because obviously I was preparing this sermon. It's crazy what we say. Around seven and a half years ago, I looked at my wife Angela in the eye and I said, I, Sam Bay, take the Angela to be my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, richer or poor, sickness or health, to love and to cherish until we die. (laughs) Only death can break the terms of that covenant. That means it doesn't matter if she loses her job, if she gets old, if she gets cancer, if the way that she... If her personality changes a billion times over in our relationship, it means I have covenantally decided and committed, I'm going to choose you every single day and stay with you and love you. Not because you're always going to be lovable or I'm going to always be lovable, but our covenant is the soil which love will not come out of. Now, why would God make marriage take place in the context of something like that, like a covenant? Why not just, I pinky promise you? 
Probably because nothing else can uphold the marriage between two sinners in difficult times. You know, I used to think a godly marriage was a couple that never fights. How foolish I was. I used to think, you know what godliness is? Like two Jesus-like figures who are like Jesus to each other. Oh, oh. <laughs> talk to any married couple. Some of the godliest couples I know fight all the time. Godliness doesn't mean you're not a sinner. It actually, the contrary means you're quite aware that you're a sinner. And when two sinners decide to marry and try to become one, there is bound to be sin. And married couples, if you've been married for even just one year and plus, you know you have experienced not only the highest of highs, but the lowest of lows in the context of marriage. If you do not want to deal with being sinned against and you sinning against, lock yourself in a room and don't talk to or engage with anyone. Because outside of that, you will encounter sin. And I will even say there will be days, because I'm, I'm not just saying this for no reason, there will be days where you legitimately hate your spouse. Like you feel something and someone's like, it sounds like you feel hatred. And you're like, that, I think that's what I'm feeling. Or, and if that's the case, think about those days where like the opposite of what you felt in your lovey-dovey season is what is dominating your heart. If your love for them or was based on their lovability in the moment or how you feel towards them and that was the basis of your marriage, then maybe divorce actually would be a quite reasonable option, would it not be? Because whatever brought you together ain't there anymore. Now, the reason I use the language of hatred is because look at verse 16. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. Uh, there, there's a lot of like, doc, uh, you know, uh, hermeneutical stuff that goes into this verse. I like the CSB. I think it's more accurate. Uh, God is literally saying here, even if these Israelite husbands hate their wives, that's not justified reason to get divorced. Because marriage is not about how you feel. It's not less than that. I hope you don't continue to hate them, but it's not about that. It's about the covenant that you made. In fact, fun little tidbit to take us out of the text and take us more to reality, to tell us that God knows what he's talking about. Did you know this idea of marriage being, being built off romantic love and attraction is a very recent, very niche, very Western contemporary culture thing? You know, half the marriages in the world still are arranged. And just to let you know, arranged marriage is not this like, I, I don't want to be with that person. Well, we're forcing you together. That's forced marriage, not arranged marriage. Arranged marriage is when you have people who love you, people who love them. They're considering more than just your attraction you have for each other. They're considering things like real life compatibility. They're considering things like, can our families really unite and get along? And arranged marriage, actually, they get, they get your opinion. If you say, no, I don't want to, they don't force you to marry. That's actually what real arranged marriage is. And in light of that, 50% of the world says arranged marriage. Very Western to say very romantic based. And notice this. The Bible never ever says marry your lover. Did you know that? Never says that. That is a cultural, uh, cultural message that was sent. The Bible does say love the one you're married to. Ephesians 5. The Bible never says find the one. The Bible says whoever you covenant with is the one. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Romantic love, biblically speaking, it is built off of and sustained on the foundation of covenant, commitment. Here's a fascinating thing. The divorce rate in a culture that highlights romantic love and attraction as the basis of why we're together, 40%. 
40, 50% divorce rates only on the increase, both inside and outside the church and Western culture. So obviously the church hasn't done a very, very good job of being salt and light here. The rest of the world, the arranged marriages, you know what the divorce rate is? 4%. In other words, maybe God knows what he's talking about, that, hey, there's something more that should be considered in something as serious as marriage. Now, not only does Malachi point out that marriage is a covenant, but he emphasizes the fact that it is a covenant not just before men, but before God. Look at verse 14, and you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, married couples, what this is saying is when you made your vows, Again, this might have been jargon for you on that day because you're just, you know, hopelessly in love. But did the pastor or officiant not say before God and these witnesses? And what God is saying is like, hey, that, that, that actually is true. Like, whether you invite him or not, if you're making a marital covenantal vow, God's there. Like, quite literally. It doesn't matter if you got married a month ago or 10 years ago. God was witness and he does not forget. Even though maybe your groomsmen do or your bridesmaids do. So it's without question, God takes marriage seriously. Now, a reasonable question is, why does God care so much about marriage? Now, the baseline, obviously, is because it's his idea. He created it. But more specifically, let's boil down, though, what is God's purpose and hope for marriage? And I think there's two things that can summarize it. First, marriage is the only human relationship that is covenantal in nature and design. In other words, marriage is designed by God to uniquely reflect his covenantal love and relationship with his people. It is singular, the only relationship that God has instituted in this way. So for example, if someone says, what is the closest human example of what God's love looks like? The Bible would say marriage. That's why God himself regularly uses marital language and imagery to say, this is how I relate to my people. Book of Hosea, right? I'm the husband pursuing my unfaithful wife. In the book of Ephesians, right? Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. So how does this play out practically? Uh, I remember reading a story. Uh, there's a story of a young couple, Ian and Larissa. I think it should be up there, their picture there. And basically the story goes, they were a young couple that was in love and they planned to get married. Okay, They were right at the point of about to get married. And before they got married, Ian basically got in a freak car accident he got a brain injury, permanently disabled. Now to the sisters here, imagine you are Larissa, right? You've basically verbally committed to covenant with this guy who you love and you believe God has called you together. You want to be in a relationship with him. And literally like moments before you're about to actually solidify your marriage, this happens. Now and the human conventional wisdom would say like, dude, Larissa, get out of there. Like, thank God that happened before you committed to him. That's not how she viewed it. She was like, all signs were pointing me covenanting with this guy. And this is a true test of that covenantal love. Was I only marrying him because he's healthy and not handicapped? So despite conventional human wisdom, they decide to get married post-disabled state. Okay? And their story has been one that's widely shared for obvious reasons. And say so they do that. And Larissa chooses to love him from day one, not like, hey, 20 years in the future, if you get handicapped, I would love you, sure, why not, but I hope that never happens. No, day one. <laughs> like day one, before honeymoon, day one. She loves him what I would call Christ-like love, so they get married, and the judge who approves their marriage license, looking at their situation and story, writes this regarding their marriage, and I quote, it's up there. He says, you two exemplify what love is all about. I believe that marriage will not only benefit you, you both, but our community, and hope that everyone in this city could see your love for one another. 
And in response to that, Larissa reflects and she shares, we don't know if that judge loved Jesus, but I do think he saw Jesus' love in us that day. It was a glimpse to us of the glory that God would bring forth in our marriage. In other words, married couples, your marriage is supposed to reflect something greater than just you. It reflects the covenantal love of God. That's what God's blessing and purpose is in marriage. Now, obviously, that's a more extreme example, and I never wish that upon anyone in our context. But some very real applications, when you go through difficult seasons of marriage, or you feel like a dark cloud is hovering over your marriage, or your spouse, just, you just have a really hard time, you feel really distant from them, they don't seem like the person that you thought they were. When you make the daily decision to still show up, to still love your spouse and honor your covenant, that, that is glorifying to God. And you're living out what it means to reflect covenantal love. Second, a clear purpose that God has in marriage for his people is very explicit, that they would raise godly children. Look at verse 15. What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. Now this is not saying, again, this, every situation in real life is complex, and I totally admit that. This is not saying, therefore, every marriage is commanded, therefore, to have children, or that the ultimate purpose of marriage is to have children. No way does it say that. In fact, I think there's plenty of situations where that's not even possible, or maybe even might be unwise in a variety of situations. What it is saying, though, however, is if you do have kids, God clearly has something to say about how he desires you raise your kids. And it's not that you would raise your children to be successful by worldly standards or that they'll be top of their class or that they'd be popular or well-liked. None of these things that our suburban culture seems to highlight so much as the epitome of what the parental life is. It's quite simple. If the Lord blesses you with family and children and you call yourself Christian, God's desire and intent is that you would raise your children in the fear of the Lord and to know and see the gospel in the context of a godly household. That's God's intent and desire. Now, there's so much that can be said here, but parents, is this on your radar at all? Whether you have kids, whether you just had a kid, whether you're thinking about having kids, or maybe even if you're not married, if you want to have kids in the future, is this on your radar? Are you aware that the main thing God looks for in your parenting is how faithful you strive to be in pointing your children to him, both by your example and your discipling? Now, whether it's understanding the importance of marriage, wanting to be intentional with your spouse or caring for your children and discipling them, I know our church enough where this should not be new for a lot of us, nor is this something that you don't want. So the issue is like, why is it so hard though? And that's where I think Malachi, I love it because he admits that it's hard. He says, literally, the reality is our natural bend is not to love our spouses this way. It's not to parent in this way. That's why in verse 15 and 16, he says two times, the only way this will happen is you have to watch yourselves carefully. There needs to be an intentionality. There needs to be a proactivity. There's no such thing as passive marital love, and there's no such thing as passive intentional parenting. It just will not happen. So here's three practical applications to close. First is to the parents. Does your approach to raising your children align with God's purpose and desire that you would raise godly offspring? Again, our church, praise God for this. There's a lot of kids, a lot of kids on the way, right? Uh, It's not too early to discuss as a married couple how you hope to intentionally approach the way you hope to raise your children. I wonder if that's a conversation you've had or you, you intend to have. The distinctly Christian belief is that children are a gift from the Lord and they ultimately belong to the Lord. Do you realize that? That they are not yours. 
You are stewarding over them before the Lord. Uh, one thing that's been very encouraging is our education ministry, if you were here last week, they set up an Advent devotional. They basically wanted to make it easy for parents to do this in a very simple way. And basically they just said, hey, we're going to give you a Christian word that's related to Advent. This past week was the word hope. Just take a selfie and then, you know, post it. And if you do it four weeks in a row, not only is it pleasing to the Lord, but $20 gift card, right? $20. Just know, I have not seen such engagement from our church since I've been a pastor here. It's up there, right? This is one. I had to put it on two pages. Yeah, some of it's like, who are you, right? Like, <laughs> i never even seen you before, right? Money talks. Now, all joking aside, what this tells me is, oh, you could do it. Oh, parents, you are very capable of doing this. In fact, myself, just know, I, I, I did it with Ezra. It took like 10 minutes. And what I did with Ezra is I took my Bible, I opened it, and I asked him some theological questions. He's a heretic. He got them all wrong. I was like, I was like Ezra, who wrote the Bible? Me. No, 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 Ezra. No, no. God did, right? And it was just like, you know, but I realized, wow. Ten minutes a day, let your children see you open your Bible. Let them hear you read your Bible. Let them hear Jesus' name talked about in your household. Not in this overly fake, unrealistic kind of way, but ten minutes a day. You don't have to do a full-on Bible study, but ten minutes a day can make a lifetime of a difference infusing godliness into the culture of your home. And this is not just for parents. This is for married couples as well. I did the math. Ezra just turned three. I'll probably have him home till he's 18. 15 years, 10 minutes a day for five days a week because I want the weekends off, okay? Five days a week, 50 minutes for 15 years, 375,000 minutes that I would have talked about God with Ezra. 625 hours if I do 10 minutes a day till he's 18. You don't think that will make a lifetime of a difference? 10 minutes a day. It's very doable. We showed it right here. Can we do that as parents? You see, children, unlike what the Orange County suburb life tells you, they're not an accessory to serve you or to just bolster whatever kind of image you're trying to create. They are gifts that we are called to steward over and just know our church values the idea of discipling the next generation. When I think about the next generation, I have so much grief because they are entering such a different, difficult, challenging world and culture than we were used to. So it's not enough to just do the typical, oh, okay, let's just send them to vacation Bible school. We need to equip and disciple the children for what is waiting for them so that they won't be just tossed to and fro by culture or fall into nominal Christianity, but they can genuinely follow Jesus because that's what we taught them to do. It's on us, not just parents, but uncles, aunties, education, everything as a church. The second exhortation is to the married. I'm not sure where you are at in your season of marriage, but Regardless, just know, marriage was never designed or intended to be easy. If you are in a blessed season, praise God for that. But that is not by any means some sort of normative standard. Marathon, uh, marathon is the best way to describe marriage. It is a lifelong covenant for a reason. I personally came into marriage feeling extremely ill-equipped. Okay, I had this very bad uh, personal example where I thought marriage was just about commitment so when I, when I heard the word covenant, I thought, like, I'm here, aren't I? Right? I'm just here. No. That's why so many of our parents' generation have this loveless marriage that they think is successful because they're just literally living under the same household. God doesn't say be roommates. It says to love one another, pursue one another. And so me, I, you know, so I saw a counselor for that. I saw a counselor. I was like, hey, something's wrong with me. Like, my understanding of love is just commitment. Like, I'm like, angry. I'm clearly not wanting to be there. But like, I'm here, aren't I? Like, I'm loving. That was me. 
very Asian in nature. And so he told me, he's like, dude, this covenant that you're making is not this dry legality, right? God doesn't just say, I'm here on time. He pursues you. He loves you. He wants to pour into you. And you know what was very helpful is I remember I was sharing with the counselor. I was like, oh, you know, like marriage isn't what I thought. And like, I'm just, I'm having such a hard time, like being the husband that I want to be. And here's what he said. He's like, how long have you guys been married? And I was like, oh, you know, X amount of years. And he says, did you know it takes an average of 10 years before even the healthiest couple feels even a semblance of oneness? 10 years. He's like, you haven't even reached it. And he was saying, what's the most difficult thing for marriages is they give up before they get there. Because they think, what's wrong with us? We're the minority. And he was saying, one of the main purposes of counseling is simply to normalize the fact that marriage is not the easiest thing. It is a journey. I know a lot of us have the temptation to put up a front and we think everyone's doing well except us. That's not true. Everyone has their fair share of struggles. The church is not supposed to be a place where you say, look at me. We're doing so well. No, it should be a place where we're like, hey, let's put all of our Instagram filters down. Man, it's tough. That doesn't mean we stay that way. We encourage each other. We push each other, which starts the third exhortation. This is more unique, and I debated what to share this, but I do think it is textually contextual, and we'll close here. The third exhortation I think I actually would want to give based off this text is particularly to the husbands. To the husbands. Um, I think the exhortation is for the husbands in particular to be proactive in marriage and home. Uh, There's a famous pastor named Chuck Swindoll. He was talking to his Christian counselor friend, and he asked him, what is the number one problem you're facing in counseling? And without hesitation, the counselor looked at Pastor Chuck and he said, you know what it is? It's passive males. Now, I understand this is interesting for the kind of culture we live in, how you're saying some very fire language. You know, okay, just, you know, you can get mad at me. But I do think this is what the Bible is saying. Because one thing the Bible doesn't leave room for in a marriage covenant is passivity from especially the husband and the father. Again, when I was talking to the same counselor, I was like, hey, what do you do if you're in a season where it's like a 50-50? Married couples, you know that feeling? Stalemate, cold war. Like literally, like 50-50 burden. And he was like, oh man, it sounds like you might feel really stuck. I was like, yeah. Sounds like you guys really might have hurt each other. He's like, yeah. It like, sounds like the Bible says you should make the first move. I was like, yeah. <laughs> because it does. There's no true 50-50. That's why Christ is called to love the bride. That's why the husband is called to love I get that it's hard. And this doesn't therefore by any means say that it's all the husband's fault or wives don't have a part in this. But I do think that is a particular application that husbands, we have to cultivate, be intentional and not be passive. So simple application. What is one way as husbands we can intentionally love our families, our wives and our children? And if you don't know, connect with other dads. I think that's one of the sweetest fellowships you can do. Hey, what are you guys doing? (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing here. Talk to each other. Uh, If you're not a Christian sitting here today, thanks for listening to what the Bible has to say. I hope you can see that whatever your experience or view on marriage is, the Bible paints a very beautiful picture of marriage that serves as a reflection to something greater, which is the covenantal marital love of God who invites you even today into relationship with him. And if you aren't married, as cliche as it might sound, I don't think it's cliche as at all. If you have any desire to be married, pray about it. Like, God, your standards are very, very difficult and there's this wilderness desert out here. What do you want me to do? Pray about it. Don't strategize on a human level. Ask the Lord. Why would he not grant you the desires of your heart if what you seek to do is honor and glorify him? So let me pray for us as we go in time and I invite the praise team up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again that we are reminded of your covenantal love through your word.
Father, I just want to lift up in particular all the married couples, all the parents, all those who in a unique way also are struggling with either wanting to be parents, wanting to be married. We thank you that your word encompasses all the nooks and crannies and the niche situations, but we do thank you that your word is clear. Help us, God, to to love one another in the covenant of marriage, to be intentional in the, the call to parent. And as a church, may we take these things seriously, God, to be the salt and light in the context that we're in. In Jesus' name we pray.